down in the depths of the old, old mine, where man is made of dust and spine. With labored hands and labored time, I make my way down the old, old mine. Down in the core through the old earth's rind, I've buried my secrets, buried my time. Buried down there is this soul of mine, down in the depths of the old, old mine. My grandfather wrote that poem. He'd worked in the mines ever since he was 13 years old. And then he deployed for World War II and got the Medal of Honor while he was over there. And when he got back, he went right back to it. Now, you'd think someone who was deemed a war hero might come back to something more prestigious or regal or whatever else, but that was not Granddad's way. All he ever wanted was all he ever knew. Hard work, the respect of his men, both on the battlefield and in the mines. He said the reason he liked it there was because down there, all that was was all that was. And all you were was all you were. And that was that. Until one day it wasn't. In the winter of 1958, my grandfather moved my dad, my uncle, my aunt, and my grandmother across the country inexplicably and immediately to Kentucky to work in the old coal mines there. What prompted the move has always been something of a taboo in my family, something of a mystery as well. The only person who seems to really know what happened is my father, and he won't speak a word of it. The only thing that everybody knows is that sometime after the move, he talked to my grandfather about what happened in Arizona, and whatever it is that my grandpa said caused them not to speak for these last 30 years or so. After working in the mines that many years, and after seeing the horrors of World War II, seeing so many men die, so many boys die, violently and painfully, something made my grandfather scared. Something I have never seen ever in my lifetime, nor could I picture it. My grandfather and I had a very special relationship growing up. I think we were probably closer than most grandsons are with their grandfathers. Maybe it was because neither of us really had a good relationship with my father. It's not like I could point to any particular vice with my dad, just there was a, a distance between us. But I remember when he would walk in to grandma and grandpa's house, there was pictures everywhere of the old mines from Arizona and Kentucky. There was pieces of wood from the old wood carts that carried the ore. There was ties for the tracks. There was a carbide helmet lamp, pictures of grandpa with his friends framed. 
Way back tucked in the corner of the room, gathering dust, was his Medal of Honor framed. Don't bother trying to find out what it was for. Grandma said that he didn't like to talk about it because the circumstances that got him that medal were not anything he was proud of. So I never asked him. In September of 2013, Grandpa was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. This was particularly hard for me to take. Growing up, I would have considered him probably my closest friend and mentor and father, for lack of relationship on my own. And all those stories that we connected over, every tale of adventure down to the Earth's crust, I knew soon it was all going to be lost. So what I did is I went and bought an audio recorder, and I had him tell them all to me again. This time I wanted to make it permanent. It's so odd what happens as you get older, though. Listening to the same stories over the years, they don't change. But what you hear does. When I was young, I romanticized the mines. It sounded like some deep, dark adventure down into the earth to find its rarest and most precious gems. Of course, the reality of it is that it took thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives. Husbands, fathers, sons, grandfathers. It was what it was. And you were who you were, as Grandpa said. Toward the end of his life, when I knew the time was coming to a close, and when he only recognized me sparingly, I took one of his good days and I asked him about what happened. I said, Grandpa, I know you don't want to talk about this, but I have to know what happened in Arizona. Why did you move? Why haven't you and Dad spoken in over 30 years? He stared at me for the longest time. Recognition drifting in and out, tears welling up in his eyes, and he never said anything. He eventually glazed over and looked back out the window, and a few days later he was gone. In all those years growing up, I had been so fascinated by the minds that I wanted to really know about them intimately. I wanted to study them up close, so I ended up taking up mine diving as a hobby. Being in eastern Kentucky, that was an option. You could go see the old abandoned mines. They were sort of, you know, tourist attractions. But by the time I was 18, I had already seen all of them. About the time I went to college, when I was feeling a little more adventuresome and independent, I decided I would start traveling. Um, I had inherited from Grandpa his old foreman's manifest. Every page was filled with detail after detail. There was 
names, there was journal entries, there was fires and explosions and huge gold finds and empty hands. It was absolutely incredible. The one piece of information that was missing was the last mine. He had left its name right at the very top. The Silver Corner Mine of Fairborn, Arizona. I would go there a few short years later to try and discover what it was that chased Grandpa off all those years ago. And what I would find, well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Even if I showed you the video, played you the audio recordings, you still wouldn't believe me. And that's okay. Nobody does. But I'll tell you anyway, if for no other reason than because it helps me to say it out loud, trying to reckon with what I saw, trying to deal with understanding now what happened. After a few years of exploring the state of Arizona and working my way through all the different mines that Grandpa had listed, taking video in each, learning more at each mine, understanding what separates a pro mine diver from an amateur, and certainly making plenty of mistakes along the way, I finally knew it was time. It took me quite a while to find the Silver Corner Mine. I had to gather little bits of information from here and there on the internet and find what I thought was its coordinates. And when you pull it up on Google Earth, there's no label. There's just sort of this familiar shape of a earthworm digging up from the surface of the dust of the desert. The drive to Fairborn was green with pine trees and mountains and waterfalls. I only saw one camper on my way. I was about a mile from the mine itself, and I saw it just off the distance, about a mile away from me, and I could see that there was clothes hung up, there was still a campfire set up, it wasn't burning, but it was there, and it looked like it was a fairly recent arrival. When I got around, I saw something that I hadn't noticed, or maybe was covered by some of the trees in Google Earth. There was an old miner's cabin. This was a fairly popular structure outside of the mines back in the day. Uh, they were used for miners who needed to take a shift off but couldn't go home to sleep in, and they were normally very, very small. Uh, this one was, was bigger than, than normal, but still small by today's standards. Um, it appeared to be from the outside that it had four rooms, you know, two windows on each corner, and a door right on the front pane. Um, it was closed up, of course, and uh, it, it looked quite a bit larger than, than what I would have expected for that day and age. And then I finally came full circle and saw the opening of the mine itself. When I got out of my truck, I took out all my gear. I had a very specific system of things that I, I tried to keep me safe because you just didn't know what you would run into down there. There's all sorts of hazards, all sorts of death traps, whether structural within the mine itself from a collapsed shaft um, or there's bad air down there. Sometimes you get in and oxygen has all but left the entire cavern. 
of course, there's always the possibility of wild animals. Besides my cameras, which I had two of, one for my helmet, a GoPro, and then one on my, uh, my chest, I also had recording gear, an audio recorder that I placed in one of my breast pockets, and I also used my phone. Um, and I would also bring in a lot of different backups for, for rescue gear. You don't want to get stranded in these places. They are typically in the middle of nowhere. And while there was the camper site down the way, I didn't really see any other signs of any sort of people there. And you bring these radios uh, that have a certain radio wavelength that are meant to call emergency services. So I had one of those with me, a CB radio, which is not as reliable, but it's there in case you need it, um, both battery powered. I brought lights so that you could see. I actually had a system of LED light colors that I'd collected over the years, and I would use it to sort of find my way back because these mines can go way down deep, and if you turn off into a corner and all of a sudden you turn another corner and you realize you don't know where the exit is anymore. So what I would do is I would start with green lights at the front and I would lay them about every 50 to 100 feet, just depending on how straight the shaft was. And then I would move on to blue lights as I went further in. If I turned off of a shaft of any kind, I would have yellow lights to show that this wasn't on the main path down the main shaft. And then finally, when I was a really good ways into the mine, I started laying down red lights. And normally by the time I got to my last red light, I was in about as far as I'd ever want to go. So back back on, all that gear in, I set off, I set my radio, one of my radios at the front. It had a detachable um, walkie-talkie of sorts where the radio communication could happen at the mouth of the mine and then your communication with the unit could happen as you walked through. So I detached that, turned it on, and laid down my first uh, green light. The first thing I noticed uh, when I walked in was there was a long series of chains just a, a little ways into the mine. These were fairly common. They, they hung from the ceiling. They would set these chains that hung low enough to hit the top of the track. And the reason they did that was because the further you went down in there, um, the more likely it was that you could possibly get hit by a rolling ore cart that you didn't hear or didn't think was coming. So they put the chains there so that when it rolled past, it would hit them and you could hear them down further in the mine. You could get out of the way because, unfortunately, that was a really common cause of, of death down there was these carts. Shortly thereafter, I went ahead and laid down another green light. And then I saw on my left... I saw a uh, cavern, right, another portal, a tunnel that went in, and it was really cool because you could start to see some of the miners' graffiti. They would take the old carbide lamps from their helmets, and they would actually scorch the dirt, and it would act like almost like spray paint, um, and they would, you know, draw names or initials or dates or instructions, and sometimes they would draw actual graffiti, like, you know, very primitive character drawings. Um, and when I got in there, sure enough, I saw some old, old names, a lot of Italian names, actually, which was more common than I realized when I first got into this. A lot of Italian folks would make their way over and, you know, they would try and make their way, hoping to find some, some riches in the mine, at least enough to, to feed their family. So I remember I 
went down that first shaft and I laid out my yellow lights and I came across this really, really cool picture of this old miner. It was, you know, a very crude drawing, but it was clearly a miner. He had a cigarette in his mouth. He, they even gave him stubble. Um, and then his headlamp was, was shining as well. And it said something, something king. Now, I'm assuming it said the silver corner king. I couldn't quite make out the first words, but a lot of times in these mines, um, if there was a particular foreman over them or somebody that was really well liked, they would get titled as the whatever mine king, right? So in this case, the silver corner king. I made my way back into the main shaft and I started to lay down one of my last green lights and something just sort of caught my attention. It wasn't any sound, it wasn't any sight, it just was this feeling. And I looked back towards the entrance, which was to my right at this point, and I could see the light outside. It had been early morning when I got there, so you could still see some light pouring in. And one of the chains was swinging. It was just slight, just a little bit. But it was enough to kind of unnerve me. It made me kind of take guard, make sure I wasn't by myself. For all I know, it could have been a bat or another animal that was making his way out after I got in. But I don't know, it just sort of immediately put me on edge. But I quickly put it behind me and I kept walking through. I got to about my fourth blue light and I was starting to get toward the end of my blue lights when I heard a sound. It sounded kind of faint but very clear. It was sort of a, a high-pitched whisper. Common sense told me that this was a barn owl. It's just known for this hiss and it's hard to differentiate it sometimes with all the echoes of somebody whispering. Now, I've heard plenty of barn owls in my time, and I wanted to believe that that's what I was hearing. Maybe this whole thing was ill-advised, but still, there was a part of me that was doing this because I knew that I had whatever it was that made my grandpa who he was, I, I had that in me. There was a kindredness of our spirits, and I knew he had to be scared when he did these things. In new mines or dark mines or any of this, he always had to be scared, and yet he did it for years and years and years. So I wasn't going to let two things that were probably just normal things in a mine keep me from going any further. So I went on. I got to about my second red light and I saw something laying on the ground just ahead of me. And as I got closer to it, I realized it was a backpack. It didn't really look old. It didn't look dusty. It didn't look like any of the other things I had found in the past, like, you know, old pickaxes or anything like that. This looked like it was recently here, as in maybe in the last couple of days. 
at that point, became aware that there could be somebody else down in the mine with me. For a couple of minutes, I didn't hear anything. I, I called a couple of times and never got any response. And then, on my third attempt, I thought I heard the smallest hint of a voice. I listened and I called out once more. And while I couldn't understand what it was saying, it was very muffled. I could clearly hear a voice that was not my own. It wasn't my echo, it wasn't me, it was distinct. I didn't know if the audio recorder was picking it up, I didn't know if the camera was picking it up, but I knew I had to get closer, so I kept walking, laid down another red light, kept calling out, and as I called out, while the voice was getting somewhat louder, it was still muffled. I remember I reached a certain point where there was in front of me a collapsed chamber where it looked like the wood had rotted through, and there was just in front of it um, a little passageway and then evidence of a, of a rock collapse that had happened. I scanned the room, and at first I didn't see anything, so I called out again. This time the voice was more clear, and it said, I'm here, but it was still muffled. I, I couldn't hear where it was from. So I said one more time, where are you? And this time, I heard it. It was coming from behind the rock collapse. And then I realized someone was trapped back there that had come down here. And my immediate thought was the person that was in the camper that I passed when I got here. So I immediately rushed over and I started trying to communicate with the person. Um, we were still having a hard time hearing each other, but I could tell the the rock was, was loose, that it had seemed to be fairly recent when this had happened. So I had no idea how long they had been trapped here. It would explain the backpack. Um, it started to explain the sounds. So I, I took out what was an old sort of shovel hand that I took with me to shovel away dirt, and I started trying to get at the rock. I sort of treated it like a, a pickaxe as I could, and I was just trying to get further enough to where I could hear them. I could try and get some information from them to try and see if I could go get rescue services. So I got to a point where I dug and I dug, and I could hear them saying something, but I still couldn't make it out. Finally, I got to a point where I thought I could understand them and enough of the words they were saying. So I said, my name is Aaron. I'm going to try and get you some help, but I need to know what your name is, and I need to know how long you've been here. And I was just able to make out the words, my family. Now, I listened for any other voices, and I thought at first he was saying his family was trapped back there with him, but I started to realize after several attempts that he was saying his family had gone to get rescue, and he said it had been many days, but he didn't know how many. The thing you have to understand about these mines is that you quickly get dehydrated, and if his backpack was out there, there was no way of getting it to him. He had gone 
at least two days without food and without water. He was probably on the brink of death. So I didn't know how good his sense of time would be. It might have just been a day for all I knew. But I knew I had to do whatever I could to, to rescue this gentleman. I started to say, I'm going to go try and get you help. And I heard him say, the miner's cabin, go to the miner's cabin. So I started to run back as quickly as I could. I left my lights in place so I could see them when I got back. About halfway up the shaft, something made me stop in my tracks. I saw it out of my peripheral vision. And it was in one of the portals where I left two yellow lights, one in the front and one in the back. When I backed up slowly, I looked to my right, down there, and I saw what I thought was the shadow of two people, and it looked like a woman and a boy, but they weren't moving. I sort of stared at them for a minute, and I said, Hi, I'm Aaron. Is that your husband back there? And they didn't say anything. I asked again, I said, is that your husband back there? We need to get him some help. Still they stood, her with her arm around her little boy. They couldn't make out any details. I could just see their silhouette against the yellow light. At that moment, I started to become somewhat frightened. When I walked closer to try and make contact against probably my better common sense, I realized what I was actually seeing was another cave drawing, another miner's graffiti that I had missed the first time. But these looked so real, it didn't look like that. When I got up on them, it didn't seem to have the same form. But that's what it was. So I shook it off, I had to run out quickly knowing I was short on time. I didn't know how long I had to try and find this man's wife. I kept running and I ran to the edge and I went to grab my radio. And I had been trying to use it the whole time and it wasn't responding like it normally did. And I realized somehow in my rush to get in, I had forgotten to turn the whole unit on. So I turned it on and started searching for frequencies and sent out an SOS. As I was, I looked up and I looked past my truck toward the miner's log cabin. And when I did, I saw that the door was open. I figured, his wife and kid must be there, so I ran as quickly as I could to the front door. I heard rustling from the back right room. I didn't hear any noise or any human voices, I just heard sort of a shuffling. As I walked towards the back right door, I began to try to see into the room. 
I could begin to slowly discern the shape of someone laying down. And I began to notice that every time the shuffling would happen, I would see the body move. Like whoever it was was laying down and couldn't get comfortable. Something in me told me to approach slowly, cautiously. As I walked closer, I tried to get within arm's length of the door, and as soon as I did, I began to be able to make out small details of the person lying there. At one point I realized I saw two eyes looking right at me. They were the eyes of a young child, but they weren't there anymore. They were lifeless, the face pale, and then I saw the blood. As I listened closer, I heard the terrible sound of something feeding on the body. I tried to back away very, very slowly, as silently as I could. When I got within three paces of the door, a creak came from the floorboard beneath my foot, and the shuffling stopped. And then I saw its eye meet the small opening in the door. cold, lifeless eyes of a grizzly, and I ran for my truck. I started to hear it behind me breaking through the wood like it was nothing, and I knew I had to get in the car if I had any chance of escaping this thing. So I went to get in my truck, went to turn it on, and my keys they were in all the way with my backpack, which I had left down in the deepest part of the mine. So I closed my eyes, I didn't even look back. I just ran into the mouth of the mine. Ran past the chains, ran past the lights. I was just sprinting all out. Right where the red lights were just beginning, there was a slight turn. And when I came around the corner, I was stopped. I looked through the red lights and I saw what had to be hundreds and hundreds of shapes before me, all of them forming silhouettes of mothers and children. I was frozen. I had no idea what I was going to do. I started to think that maybe I was losing air, that maybe I had been breathing in carbon monoxide, and all this was the result of the poisoning slowly working its way through my mind, making me hallucinate. But then, behind me, 
I heard the familiar echo of chains clanking as they swung into each other from the top of the mines. There were no options for me. I knew that even if I was hallucinating all of these shapes in front of me, that that bear was real, and I had no chance running back toward it. So I closed my eyes, and I ran forward. I didn't know what I expected to feel, and it wasn't a massive resistance, it was little things here and there, like the feel of hair on my hand or a garment on my shoulder. When I finally reached the very end of the shaft, trying to keep calm, trying to keep a straight head, trying to remember that there was a bear behind me and nothing else, there was nothing else. I was just starting to dehydrate, I was starting to breathe bad air and I needed to get out of this situation as quickly as possible, but I also needed to help this man. When I reached him, I, I had to jump over where the shaft was in order to avoid the hole. And I realized that this could provide protection from the bear, so long as it didn't attempt to go around. So I sent out another SOS message. I tried to detail every aspect I could, where my truck was, what color it was, the coordinates that I could remember, but I couldn't remember the coordinates all of a sudden. I started to even forget my name. But in a quick moment of clarity, I said, Aaron Atwood. I said the coordinates as best as I could remember. I told them there was a bear after us, but that there was a man and I trapped in the silver corner mine. I still received nothing back, but I waited and I kept sending. In the meantime, I tried to communicate with this man what our situation was. I said when I had gone out to get his wife and child in the miner's cabin, I had encountered a bear, and before I could finish, he cut me off. He said, oh my God, is my wife and family okay? Are they safe? In that moment, knowing that this man could very well die here while I was talking to him through this wall, I lied. I said, yes, I saw them. I let them drive away in my truck and I told them I would wait here with you while they went and got rescue services. I could hear the man breathe a sigh of relief even in his labored breathing. At one point he started to talk about his friends coming down there with him. I said, don't you mean your family? And he said, no, my friends. My friends came down here with me. I said, well, what happened to them? And that's when he started to tell me about the collapse. He said they had been walking over the wood and it gave out and when it gave out, the dirt in front had fallen as well. He said his friends had told him they would try and go get help, but they had never come back. I didn't know what to believe. I knew that the lack of water, lack of food, and lack of air had started to affect his mind. 
just as it had mine after only about an hour. I had no way of knowing how long he'd actually been here. No way of knowing if he was remembering his family correctly or his friends. Maybe he had come down here twice and he was mixing up his stories. But something in me made me think to look down into that shaft. I slowly made my way toward its opening and pointed my headlamp downward at it. I was greeted with a body splayed across rocks and wood, pierced and broken. Dead. Just then, my radio went off on my shoulder. It was the rescue team. It was faint and it was static and it was garbled, but I started to pick up the signal, so I immediately grabbed it. I said, yes, yes, this is Aaron Atwood, please come in. I could tell they were trying to communicate with me, I could at least tell that they were getting closer. And I repeated our distress call, I told them I was starting to hear them, but that they needed to come closer in whatever direction they were coming. And then I heard the growl. I moved very, very slowly tilted my head up, and there stood the bear. Just across the other side of the hole, I had not even heard him get this close. My heart was racing through my chest, sweat pouring out of my head. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed there was another body, one I had missed had been behind me as I entered the portal. It was torn to shreds. Bone and blood and clothes all ribboned. I knew there was only one of two outcomes from this. Either I was going to die here or I wasn't. It was what it was. And I was who I am. And there in the midst of all of it, I had an incredible sense of peace. I stood. The bear watched me. I stared it down, trying to communicate in our own unspoken language that I had no intention of dying this way. I finally heard the radio start again. This time I heard clearly a repeat of my coordinates that I had provided. I sent out an affirmative and said I was still trapped in here with the bear, that the man on the other side of the wall was still living, but we needed help quickly. I didn't know how much time he had, but they told me that their ETA was an hour. I didn't know if we had an hour, and I was going to use every last second of that time to try and rescue this man, so I turned my back to the beast and chiseled away at the dirt and the rock. Communication with the man and I was scarce, but occasionally he would wake up or become coherent and begin talking again. He started to ask me more questions about myself, how long I had been doing this, what brought me to this mine. 
answers were short as I hammered away, between breaths of sweat and still looking over my shoulder, for fear that the bear was simply toying with me, and that one time when I'd look back, I'd be staring into its wide maw. But whatever its motivation, when I turned around one of the times it wasn't there anymore, it had walked away, so I carried on. As I chiseled away at the rock and dirt around, the man's words became more clear, and I started to see what was the signs of a familiar miner's graffiti on either side of the rock wall formation. I knew that this is probably what him and his friends or him and his family had come to find if he hadn't come down here himself for all I knew, just like me. We talked about the mines, we talked about what they were like. It was strange in the acceptance of possible death. Communication with another human being seems sublime, peaceful and intimate. The rescuers were getting closer. They kept reaching out to my radio and I kept confirming where we were. And I was starting to get very close, I thought. I saw how much progress I had made based on the graffiti and the writing all around me. There were sometimes now full sentences I could see. I thought I would still need the rescue's help to break through the wall, but I could feel the resistance letting up, I could feel shallow dirt again. But the man was becoming less and less coherent. He had begun to sing. It was a song I didn't recognize. It sounded old, like an old folk song. I tried to ask him what it was, but he just kept singing to himself. At one point, I stopped because I felt the bear's presence behind me again. I slowly turned my head, only it wasn't the bear. The mothers and the children were back, all of them, filling this entire cavern and the entire shaft, swaying back and forth, slowly as if rocking a baby to sleep. That familiar whisper came. First it started with one, the child whispered right in front of me. Then another, then the mothers began. And there was a chorus of dreadful whispers. I knew I was beginning to lose my mind. The man continued to sing as if he couldn't hear them they were deafening to me. Then I heard the familiar rattle of the chains at the entrance. Knowing that my time might be short as well, knowing if I could just stay conscious, just stay sane for the next five minutes until the rescue team got there. We could make it out of this alive. I turned back the crescendo of all the noises, trying to suppress them. I hammered away at the wall giving away more and more and more. I opened my eyes to try and see how much was left and there was almost nothing. I looked down and I saw that I had begun to uncover a whole new list of names 
from graffiti. All these drawings around me, all these initials and these dates from where I had dug. I was amazed I had gotten so far. I didn't even notice the bloody pulp that my hands had become and the blisters that had formed. But when I looked at the list of names, there it was. Alden Atwood. My grandfather. Everything was silent for that moment. What broke me from my hypnotizing gaze at my grandfather's name was the man speaking again. He said, did you have friends here? What about your family? I said, yes. Yes, I did, and I hammered away more. Now I heard the sirens coming down the chamber. I heard the whispers. I heard the chains. I was close. I was so close. I chiseled away. And then the man started to say something, and it sounded familiar. Buried there my secrets. Buried there my time. Buried down there is the soul of mine. Down in the depths of the old, old mine. I froze. On my last stroke that broke through that wall finally, I could hear him as clear as day now. Isn't that how it goes, Aaron? The old poem? All my friends, my friends left me here. Michael Morosi, Leonard Small, Jimmy Gamsky, and Alden Atwood. My eyes set wide. I crazily pulled the last few craters that blocked my sight into the cavern. What I saw when I looked in was a human skeleton. It had been here for years, its flesh completely gone, a carbide helmet, old work clothes. And there, just above my grandfather's name, I saw familiar handwriting. It took me a moment to realize I didn't hear any sounds anymore. I looked behind me. There was no cavern that was out. The wood was intact. I looked ahead. There was no carnage of a dead human body. No sign of a bear. No silhouettes of women and children. I grabbed my backpack. I broke through those chains got in my truck, drove away, and never looked back. It took me days before I felt like I could go see my family again. 
I didn't know how or if I would ever talk about this, but I knew that of all the people in the world who would understand me most in this very moment, it would be my father. When I saw him again, he didn't know what I knew, what I had experienced. But for the first time in a long time, I looked him in the eye and he could see in me a desperation, a fear, all too familiar to him. And without a word, He grabbed me and hugged me for the first time in many, many years. We went inside and I told him where I went. I told him what I saw and I played the video for him. As it was beginning, I asked him, what did Grandpa tell you all those years ago? What is it he said that made you stop speaking? My father stared at the screen blankly, and then he said it. He said, your grandfather told me that he had killed a man, confessed to it right there. He said he had reasons that he couldn't explain and that he didn't know if I'd ever believe him, but that it didn't matter. His reasons were his reasons. And that was good enough. We watched the rest of the video in silence. I continued to look over at him as we watched the footage and I would occasionally catch him looking at me as we watched. When we got to the moment where I saw the women and the children I looked over at him, but there was no change in his expression. He just sat there watching and at one point looked over at me and he said, did the video stop? I looked up and I could see what was going on and I said, well, well no, look, don't you, don't you see them there in front of me? He looked back got up and walked toward the screen. And he looked at me in bewilderment. And he said, see what? See who? And in that moment I felt afraid again.
I asked him if he could hear the man on the other side of the wall. He paused for a moment. He said, no. I'm sorry, son, I didn't hear anything. And the bear? No. I said, Dad, what do you see? What, what does it sound like I'm saying? Who, who does it sound like I'm talking to? And he said, son, listen. I don't know what it is you saw down there. And you are many things to me. But you are not a liar. Whatever it is you experience there, I trust you. I was trying to piece it together. I, I could see everything just like I was there again. I, I said, no, 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 wait. Just let me, let me get to the end. And I kept going to different memories. I went to the bodies. I went to the hole. I went to everything and none of it was what he saw. We finally reached the end. And I asked him, I said, there, tell me you see that. Can you see that? I was pointing at my grandfather's name. And he could. My grandfather was many things. But he and my father and I, none of us are liars. If my grandfather said he had his reasons, I believe him. If my father tells me he can't see what I see when I watch that video or hear what I hear, I believe him. And whether or not you believe me when I tell you what I saw or show you what I saw, I'm telling the truth. What you will see is my grandfather's name inscribed in what appears to be a shallow hole in a wall. And you can see the remains of an old human body dead for decades and decades before and inscribed just above the helmet right on the rock wall reads the inscription here lies the silver corner king